Tuesday Night Mystery Club. Hello and welcome to the Tuesday Night Mystery Club. I'm your host, Caitlin McCluskey, and today I am joined by one of my cousins, Jessica Kravis. Hi, Jess. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Woo! <laughs> so excited. <laughs> so you were just on a like long camping trip. How was mm-hmm. that? It was really good. We drove from Toronto to Sioux Lookout to visit my brother up there, which um, takes about 18 hours to drive that far in Ontario. So we went camping. Yeah, it was kind of a crazy drive. (laughs) We went camping the whole way and it was really awesome. Lake Superior Provincial Park like was definitely the coolest part of the drive for sure. So it was good. I would like to do that kind of like drive up to like Sleeping Giant National mm-hmm. Park or Provincial mm-hmm. Park. Yeah. Yeah. We um we stayed at Sleeping Giant for one night and we mm-hmm. had a really bad tent that night um, because oh. it's a kind of a long story. But we basically got <laughs> rain – like we finished making our dinner and it started to rain a little and we're like oh perfect timing like we finished our dinner in perfect moment (laughs) but apparently not it poured rain for 15 minutes and the tent filled with five liters of water like I sopped it up with a cloth and like yeah and like poured it into this bucket and like ended up collecting five liters of water yeah it was it was awful that's (laughs) awful yeah yeah did you you slept it though or did you sleep in the car no, we did. We slept there. But like, luckily, the sun came out, and I was able to get my sleeping bag mostly dry. But my sleeping bag is down, so it doesn't smell mm-hmm. too nice after it rains. No, <laughs> no. So that no, was a little unfortunate. Great. But but after that, it was okay. <laughs> yeah. So it was a good trip. That story is kind of relevant because this book is. It was um the the Agatha Christie. Uh, July book club pick of the week and the kind of theme was like adventure so adventurous story into our adventurous book (laughs) cool great I'm looking forward to it (laughs) (laughs) okay so the book is called the man in the brown suit and it was written in 1924 so it's actually one of Agatha Christie's like first books cool it's not one of her like main detectives. So it's not a Hercule Poirot. It's not a Miss Marple. The the kind of main character is this girl named Anne Bedingfield, which we'll get into a little later. First, there's like a prologue. So okay, okay, get ready. Okay. <laughs> so we start by getting introduced to this like Russian dancer character called Countess Nadina, and she's she's just finished dancing at one of her shows in Paris, and she's gone back into like her dressing room. Mm-hmm. And then this man comes to see her called Count Sergius Pol- Polovich. <laughs> I don't think the name's that important. Okay. But the Count. Okay, the Count. She accepts to see him. And then it turns out they kind of like start talking and you get this sense that they're both members of this like criminal organization run by a, a character that they just call the Colonel. Okay. <laughs> the Colonel and the Count. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he kind of, the idea is that this, the colonel is the head and he just gets all his cronies to do the dirty work. And like that way he can't be blamed for anything. He's not like doing anything incriminating. But now he's like planning to retire. And so these two 
like clearly both their personalities are fake like they're just like almost like spies Mm -hmm. so they're they're talking about him and then nadina the dancer admits that she actually has some dirt on the on the colonel she had done a job 20 years ago where she was supposed to replace de beers diamonds with ones from south america so i think it's is de beers that's the diamond company right I, I don't I have no idea. I was going to ask you who's De Beers Diamonds. <laughs> okay, I I it's either I'm going to look it up because I am curious, but I mm-hmm. think it's the actual like big company today, De Beers Canada. Okay. Yeah. So Agatha Christie doesn't always use real companies mm-hmm. or real like cities and places, but maybe because this is her earlier work, she's like sticking to the truth a little bit. Okay. But it's like they mine in, I think, South Africa, probably, what's that movie? Is it Blood Diamond? Yeah, Blood Diamonds, yeah. <laughs> so I, you can kind of picture that. There's probably a lot of shady business going on okay, with yeah. this as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So De Beers, she's, she, what she did is she was supposed to like replace these diamonds in this like heist, but she ended up keeping some of them, some of the more notable diamonds in her possession so that she could use them as blackmail in the future and now it's like 20 years later and she's like ready to use the diamonds for her own good okay i see i see so her plan is to go to london the following day and she kind of hints to someone is arriving by boat from south africa and then she said like to help her out and she goes and it's my husband so i trust him and it's this all like secrecy thing yada 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 Okay, so basically this lady's going to blackmail some guy with some diamonds. That's what's happening. Okay. Yes. (laughs) Cool. Yes. So this is like, that's like the prologue. So kind of, don't forget those characters, but they're not the main story. That's like pre-story stuff. Okay, pre-story. I'll write that down. (laughs) (laughs) So then we start chapter one and we get introduced to our like main detective character, Anne Bedingfield, and she'll just go by Anne. Okay. She's kind of starting the story by saying that everyone's been begging her to write this story down and like make a book of it. And so she kind of says that finally she's agreed to do it and that Sir Eustace Pedler, this like um, British Parliament guy, has, he's been, he also really wants her to write the story. And so he's letting her use his um, personal diary to fill in gaps that she wasn't around for in the story okay okay i'll say when it's like when it's Anne speaking or when it's um sir eustace peddler's diary which point of view it is but that's going to be the story cool and so she kind of starts her story by saying that she'd always longed for an adventure mm-hmm. but that her sadly her dad was a professor and he he was very he was in that did that like it's kind of like stereotypical mindset of what a professor would be like, where his mind was so focused on his study that he didn't even think about like eating or paying bills or any of that kind of stuff. And so <laughs> once her okay. mother had died, Anne, as like a young girl, had taken on those responsibilities. Okay. So she had to take care of like her obsessive father, basically. <laughs> yes. Okay. Exactly. So he did work on like, they call it primitive man. Okay. Um, which <laughs> which is like, I guess, anthropology slash, slash archaeology. Like he's digging up like old human skulls and things like that from yeah the different eras. 
It sounds like the dark days of like anthropology, like primitive man studies. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes, exactly. <laughs> cool. So they lived in a place called Little Hampsley, where there was, and the reason they had moved there was there was like this cave or cabin full of, what did they call it? Arg, arg, argnation? Argnicarian? I don't, okay, I don't know the names. They're not important, but they're <laughs> full of like a, like a lot of um, uh, human remnants and things like that that they can yeah, yeah. study. Okay, cool. Okay. So the reason that's important is because that, like Anne's kind of describing her at the beginning of her story and her there's been like a new find in the cave that's super exciting mm-hmm. and it's a pretty cold day so her dad goes off to investigate and then very sadly four days later he dies of double pneumonia from oh. that expedition oh no yeah okay suspicious maybe <laughs> um, not really not really I, I think okay. you can forget you can forget about the father <laughs> character if you want <laughs> Okay. Basically, that was all to say, like, it was, that's how Anne got, like, quote unquote, liberated. So she didn't have to take care of her father anymore, who she kind of says, sure, they loved each other, but they, or maybe, I don't know, she's saying they didn't, they they cared for each other, but they never loved each other. So she wasn't too sad by her father's death, death, but it left her to be able to, like, go on adventures. And so that's the, that's the tie-in of why that's described. Okay, I see. Very liberating. So Anne has, she she's just saying that, yeah, this kind of has liberated her a little bit to be able to, before she had to take care of her father because he was so kind of helpless without her. And now she's able to go on her own. However, the her dad's lawyer comes to visit her and basically said all the money that's been left her is 87 pounds. So she's got some of this freedom, but also maybe not the cash to be able to do anything with it. <laughs> that sucks. <laughs> oh, yeah. Dang. But on top of that, she kind of describes the beginning of this book as her kind of saying that if you're pretty, a lot more opportunities get offered you. And so this lawyer says that he kind of he feels bad telling her that all she's been left is 87 pounds. So then he says, I'm sure my wife and I would be sure to give you a home for a little bit in London with us. To which Anne immediately says, yes, I'm down, but knows in the back of her mind, there's no way the wife actually wants her to come. Right. But she's kind of bulldozing ahead anyway yeah she's like whatever i'm going anyway yeah okay (laughs) and so then there's this kind of funny she arrives in london and meets the wife and she they show her her room and she goes up and kind of like starts unpacking and she can hear the wife downstairs getting mad at the her lawyer husband and so and it's this weird i'm sure it was like you would understand the kind of joke in the 1920s (laughs) but what she says is she just like pulls her hair back so that her ears are showing and then when she goes down to dinner the wife looks like super pleased that she's showed her ears. And that's like a way of like making herself not look pretty. I, I don't get it. I show my ears all the time. So I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what? So like if your ears are showing, that's super ugly. <laughs> I don't, I honestly don't know. Cause I don't know what kind of hairstyle she would have been wearing. Like was her hair down? Was it up? But yeah, the idea that like she pulls her hair behind her ears, like that was like a. Right. Right. I don't know. I don't maybe know, ugly yeah. thing to do. Maybe, like, pulling your hair back would be something tied to, like, having to work, you know? Because you want your hair out of your face. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> Pull your hair so back. Just, you know, fun. Everyone will be fine. Fun piece of history. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the, the goal is for her to find a job. And, like, 
she's not supposed to live with these people forever. Like she's supposed to find her own way and she knows that. So she's looking for a job, but she's been pretty unsuccessful because the type of work she wants to do is not necessarily, she doesn't necessarily have the skill set for it or the, the background, but she keeps going. And so she's been, she's just returning from an unsuccessful interview on January 8th when she's kind of in one of the London underground tube stations mm-hmm. and she wants to go to the extreme end of the platform because she'd heard like rumors about there being uh, like doorways and stuff in the tunnels. And so she wants to see them. And there's just one other man at the end of the platform with her. And she kind of notes that he smells like he reeks of mothballs, which she finds strange because normally men would have taken their winter coats out like more in like November. And so the smell of mothballs should have been gone by January. And so she's looking at him and going this. He has like really tan face. And so she's thinking, oh, he must be from somewhere south. Like he he's just he's just come back from somewhere. And that's why he's just taken his coat out of storage. Okay, that makes sense, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you just just gotta accept it <laughs> <laughs> so she's kind of it, kind of just looking at him and thinking about thinking through these things when he looks up at her and then seems to see something behind her that really freaks him out and so he takes a step back and falls onto the rail track and hits the third rail which electrocutes him whoa it's all very sudden Wait, hold on. So yeah. she's like, she just sees this guy and then he looks at her and it's so scary because her ears are showing that he falls back. I'm joking. I know her ears are <laughs> Like he just falls back and dies. Okay. So what's behind her? Exactly. What's behind her? So she kind of is so freaked out. She doesn't look behind her. She just kind of like watching this commotion and like basically shock frozen in place. But... Um, some officials run up, like a bunch of people run up and are able to get him off the tracks. Mm-hmm. And then a man comes running in saying he's a doctor and he pronounces this man dead. Okay. Okay. What the heck? <laughs> yeah. So at this point, Anne, I think everything kind of hits her and she starts to feel really nauseous. Like maybe the shock's wearing off a little bit. So she goes to like run upstairs and takes the elevator. And the doctor, the, the man, the doctor man runs past her to catch the elevator and as he passes her he drops like a little slip of paper and so she Anne picks it up to give back to him but by the time she gets to the elevator the doors have closed and he's gone and when she goes up the stairs she can't find him anymore okay what was on the paper do you know can i know yeah so I'll, i'm gonna tell you now okay she reads it out and it says one seven dot one two two and then there were two words that said kill morden castle what Whoa, okay, hold on. Kilmorden Castle? Yeah, it looks like a name. A name of something. She's thinking maybe like a name of a house. Right. So it's like, is it one, is it like the words written out 17.122 or is it just numbers? It's the numbers, yeah. Okay. Five numbers and then two words. Okay. And she's kind of looking at it, trying to figure out like, I guess it's not that important. I think she almost goes to throw it out when she realized the paper smells like mothballs. Ooh. The plot thickens. So then she thinks that this wasn't the doctor. This was, this came off that dead man. Right. But why would the doctor must have picked it up or taken it, right? Exactly. And so then, and she's never able to find the doctor. So she's kind of a little bit suspicious about what was going on. Mm -hmm. And she also, she found something weird about the doctor as he was kind of like checking this man, if he was like checking for a pulse. Mm -hmm. And then she goes back home 
after this and kind of works it in her head what it was. And I think she lays down and kind of like repeats the motions that he had done. And she realizes that it's because he checked for heart, the heart, like the beating of the heart on the, or the right side, whatever is wrong. He checked for the heartbeat on the wrong side of the body. And so she's kind of realizing she thinks that he just, he wasn't actually a doctor. He had just gone through this guy's pockets and said he was. So she's very suspicious of all of that. Right, right. Okay, yeah. So the doctor maybe wasn't a doctor. Okay. Yeah. She also tells the story to this, her dad's lawyer who's housing her. And he agrees that she has to testify at the inquest because she was the closest person there and can give like the best info. Mm -hmm. And so while they're there, they find that the, 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 that the deceased man was named L.B. Carton. And he was from Kimberley, South Africa. Oh. Uh, just also, they give the verdict of an accidental death, which makes sense. Okay. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So basically, this guy from South Africa could have been like, like that paper could have been a paper saying to like kill Morden Castle. Like, is that the colonel maybe? Or something? Or he's like Possibly. obviously tied to like, okay, yeah, obviously you're not going to tell me. But he's like clearly tied to like whoever was in the mob <laughs> at the prologue. Okay. What was his name? LB something? <laughs> L.B. Carton C-A-R-T-O-N Okay, okay, interesting Okay So then the next day, this newspaper called The Daily Budget, which is like It's not like the highest end newspaper But it's not like Total crap magazine It's like in between mm -hmm. Okay, like the metros Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. I was trying to think of an example that that, that works um, They publish on like their front cover A article called Extraordinary sequel to tube accident, woman found strangled in lonely house. And the reason that they think they're connected is because both the dead man from the subway station and this dead woman both had an order to view the same house. And so what that meant, I don't know if it's the same nowadays, but you would go to like a realtor's office and they would write you out a note to view whatever house they had on file. And then you could show it to if there was like a servant in the house, I think, or something to get the key and go into the house. Okay, that makes sense. So like they were just basically looking at the same apartment. Okay. Yeah. And so they're wondering if there's a connection since there's both of these people are dead. Okay, crazy. So Anne is just kind of interested. And so she keeps up with this case. And through the newspapers, they're kind of saying no one came to identify the dead woman. So they don't know who she is. The house hate agents had been given the name of Mrs. DeCastina, but the hotel she had given where she is staying, no one by that description or name was there. So it was kind of clearly a fake name is what right. they're thinking. Okay, so she was hiding or something. Mm -hmm. Or something, yeah. So she had arrived at, the house is called Mill House because it was by the river. She'd arrived there around 3 p.m. and had a house order. So the there was like a lodge house or a gardener's house on the property at the gate. Mm -hmm. And so the woman who was the cook for the house who lived there, Mrs. James, she gave her the key and said that her kind of story was that, so she gave her the key. And then shortly after the woman, a young man had arrived and he had said that he was with the lady. He had just been held up writing a telegram. Mm -hmm. And so she waved him in no problem. And then he had come out about five minutes later and returned the key to, to Mrs. James um, and he kind, she kind of describes him as looking ill, like he had seen a ghost. And then she also hadn't seen the woman come out of the house. She just kind of had assumed 
that she had passed earlier and she had missed her because the man had returned the key. Okay. And he looked all ill and and crazy, maybe because he just saw her dead or he killed her? Question mark? Maybe. Yeah. Okay. That's that's kind of the idea that the papers are giving. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the body had ended up actually being discovered the following day, like 24 hours later, by another couple who had come to view the house, had a, like had an order to view the house. And so they originally, everyone originally thought that the man who had been killed in the tube was the same man that had killed her, killed this woman, and then he had died. But it's impossible because he had been killed at 2 p.m. And this woman had been seen alive at 3 p.m. So the times didn't work out. Okay. So hold on. Nobody found this woman's body for like a day. So the Mrs. James or whomever didn't go into the house at any point. No. And the way that that makes sense because they had their own like lodge house that was um, on the property, but separate from the house. It was like a, I guess an estate, like it wasn't just a normal house. It would have had a lot of grounds. And so they didn't go into the house. They lived on their own and the, the master of the house wasn't there as he was trying to sell the house, it was empty. So there was no one in there. There was no furniture. There was no nothing. Okay, I see. All right. So that wasn't, I don't think anyone found that suspicious. And no one else had come to see the house until that that couple the day, the day later. All right. Okay. Okay. So they also find that she had been strangled with like a cord. And she had had lots of money in her handbag. So they don't think it was a robbery because of that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anne's kind of reading all of this and feeling like I have like I have a lot of information to share. I kind of feel like I know not what's happened, but she she wants she she doesn't want to hold back on this piece of paper and whatever. So she decides to go to Scotland Yard. Also, she I think wants to get some information herself. Yeah, she's just curious. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So when she gets there, they treat her really condescendingly. Like they're kind of going like, "Yeah, sure, you have information for us. Okay, like good work, honey." Like not they're not being very nice classic (laughs) yeah and so she's telling them what she saw and they're not really believing her and then she says she doesn't think the man was a doctor because he didn't have the manner for it and i think they're still not believing her until she basically gets up to go and says i know he wasn't a doctor because he felt for he felt for the heart on the wrong side of his body on the right side okay and that kind of i think leaves the scotland yard detectives kind of like Oh, tell us more. But by that point, she's left. She's like, you guys, you're not worth it. And leaves the house. Uh, not leaves the house. Leaves Scotland Yard. Okay. Yeah. She was like, screw you guys. You're not going to help me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Do this on my own. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then she goes to see this guy called Lord Nasby. And he's the owner of that newspaper, The Daily Budget. Okay. And so she manages to get an interview with him. Kind of, she's around... Okay, that doesn't matter. She managed to get an interview with him and she tells him the whole story. And then when she mentions that slip of paper with the numbers and letters on it, he's immediately interested. And he kind of goes like, oh, show me the paper. But she's smart gal. Doesn't She's like, uh, no, I think I'm going to keep it to myself for now unless you want to hire me. Right. Oh, genius. Good for her. <laughs> yeah. So he kind of says, okay, you're right. I am interested, but we have our own we have our own person on the story. So unless if you can find out any more information and you like cable it to us, we'll hire you as a, as like our like private investigator for this case. And so it's this idea of like, you don't have, you don't have enough info yet for us to run a story, but I'm interested and you seem like a smart gal. So I'll run your story if you can find more. Right. Okay, cool. 
So he was like interested in, he was interested in the paper. Is that because maybe the woman also had a piece of paper on her? Anyway. I I think he's more just interested. In like actual evidence? Yeah. I think the idea that the paper came from the dead man, yet this like quote unquote doctor had stolen the paper makes him interested about like there must be more to this story. Right. Okay. I see. So Anne goes home to try and make sense of this slip of paper because right now it's just a series of numbers and two words. And so she looks up all of these, like there's no internet right now, but she has all these books of like who's who or like houses in this county or things like that. And she's just trying to find an estate called Kilmorden Castle, but to no avail. She doesn't find anything. Okay, I see. So like she's basically in like the phone books of the time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, the phone books plus anything else that existed. Right, okay. There's this, um, I had never heard of it until kind of starting to read these books, but it's called like a who's who. And I think it was this like, you could buy this book and it would tell you all the famous people around at that time and like who they are, who they're related to, like who they're dating, like all that kind of stuff. Okay. It's like like Us Weekly and Wikipedia all in one. Yeah. (laughs) okay i see (laughs) so from there her like next line of attack is to go to that same house agent that we're trying to lease the mill house and she gets her own order to view the house and so this is like her she wants to be on the spot see see the crime scene Mm -hmm. so she goes to the house and she kind of acts to that housekeeper mrs james like she doesn't know a whole lot about the case and that really plays her favor because it makes the housekeeper kind of like say oh yeah this girl's not a reporter or anything and also it makes mrs james want to tell her all about it she's like oh you haven't heard and so it's like she kind of mrs james becomes important i see i see smart (laughs) yeah so she describes mrs james describes the the lady would come to view the house as being very pale um, but she had been kind of smiling all the way up to the house like almost like she was proud of herself Mm, okay Proud of herself or in a good mood? It could be either. The, the, okay. Who knows? Because this is like Mrs. James' description of what she thought of her. Oh, true. Okay. Um, and then Mrs. James also kind of tells her that Sir Eustace Peddler, who's actually the owner of the mill house, he had been out on the Riviera for, because it's like the winter, and so I guess people who have money go somewhere warmer. Good choice. But he had come back to he had come back to England basically to... She says, beg on her, his knees for her to stay. But I think really what happened was they just offered to pay her more money to keep her and her husband um, as caretakers to the house. Okay, I see. <laughs> <laughs> and then they, they talk about the man that had come after after the woman who had died. And Anne kind of on like a whim asks, was his chin shiny? And Mrs. James says, oh, yes, it was, and then looks all confused. And so Anne makes up a lie, and she says, oh, well, I just heard that murderers have shiny chins. (laughs) So wait, why does it matter if his chin's shiny? (laughs) Yeah, okay, so I'll tell you. So the the, the quote-unquote doctor from the tube station the day she had been there had, had a black beard, but she's kind of wondering, could it have been a fake beard? And so if his chin was shiny, it would mean he could have been wearing spirit gum to hold on a piece of facial hair. And so she's thinking that these men could possibly be the same person, the doctor and the the mystery man. Mm, okay, okay. Good theory. Okay. 
I should also say now while I'm remembering this mystery man, they in the newspapers, they've been calling him the man with the brown suit because he was wearing a brown suit. And that's where the, the title of the book comes from, the man uh, in the brown suit. I see. Okay, hold on. Is the man in the brown suit, the? is that the doctor man or the or the uh, guy that died on the tracks? It's the, the papers are describing it as the man who had gone in after the lady who had died at the mill house. But Anne is starting to think now that that man and the doctor could be the same person. Okay. Okay. I'm with you. Okay. Yeah. So that's not, that's like a, just an Anne theory. No one else is necessarily connecting the two. I see. So then she goes into the house to kind of look around the room for clues, but there's basically nothing there. Like there's no furniture, no carpet, no nothing. And obviously the body's not there anymore because she's not, she's not the police, (laughs) but she does find, she drops her pencil while she's looking around and it immediately starts to roll down the floor because it's uneven. And then there are these cupboards at the end, at the edge of the room. And when she goes to pick up her pencil and open the cupboard, the pencil keeps rolling into the cupboard. And so she kind of realizes huh, something might have might be at the back of these cupboards. So she kind of roots around and finds a roll of Kodak film. Oh. And she's kind of going, oh, well, this could be, like, Sir Eustace used to live here. This could be his roll of film. It could be anyone's. But then she smell, She kind of smells it and realizes, no, this smells like mothballs. I think this came off the dead man in the tube station. Okay. So mothballs left, right, and center. Yeah, you just got to trust that... Well, I mean, I have a good nose to be a detective, apparently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so she wants to see what's on the this roll of films, like get them developed. Is her like okay, this like thing in her thinking, this is the next step, mm-hmm. and so she brings it to the Kodak Kodak place in town because she's like, I gotta go right to the, you know, the the real experts. I don't want anything bad to happen. Mm-hmm. And the man that she asks to develop it kind of laughs at her and says she's made a mistake. This role is unexposed. It hasn't been used yet. Oh yeah. So she's a little disappointed. Yeah. Like what was, Oh, it's too bad. Yeah. It kind of, it changes the, the line of inquiry. So she leaves feeling a little upset and as she's walking away, she passes one of the like big shipping offices where uh, you could book like cruises and things like that. And the window shows a bunch of their boats. And one of them is called the Kenilworth Castle. And she hears that name, Kenilworth Castle, and something triggers in her brain. And she goes, that sounds an awful like, lot like Kilmorden Castle. Right, of course. And so she goes inside to like check it out and finds that there is a boat called the Kilmorden Castle. And it's actually leaving in a few days on the 17th of January. And so to Anne, it like clicks. She's like, oh, those numbers are a date 17 1 22, um, the 17th of January, the first month, and then the year is 1922. So she's like, click, okay. Okay. So yeah. there's going to be people on this boat, possibly, that are important. That's, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, or this is a no good story. <laughs> yeah. So then the other thing is that she kind of asks, how much are the tickets? And a first class ticket is exactly 87 pounds, which she takes as a sign because that's how much she had been left by her father. And so she spends all her money right there and then buys a ticket. Yeah, it was the Cosmos decided that one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Oh, and this, the boat is sailing to, I don't think I mentioned, but the boat is sailing to South Africa. Oh, okay. Obviously. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. (laughs) 
So in our next chapter, we jump to Sir Eustace Peddler's point of view. And he's oh, kind of writing about his journal entries are actually pretty funny because he has this like personality of, so I think he's a, he's like a, not a premier, but like a house of parliament representative of some kind. Okay. Or it has to do with parliament in some way. And his attitude is always like, he doesn't want to do any work at all. Like he just wants to relax. And so that's how this first entry starts out about all he ever wants in life is to be comfortable and not do any work. But he has this secretary that is just like so hellbent on getting him to do things and be productive, which is normally would be a great secretary. Like he'd love to have this guy, but his personality is just so opposite that he it doesn't work. Oh my gosh. I wonder if that's like how people, like how Agatha Christie saw like a politician in 1922. She's like, none of them <laughs> want to work. Everybody just wants to relax. <laughs> I I would, I could imagine that. I could believe that. Right. So he's writing in his journal that his secretary, whose name is um, Guy Paget, which I'm sure is French, like would be like Guy Paget. Paget. Oh, yeah, Guy Paget. Okay. We'll, we'll anglicize it. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just going to call him Paget, Paget, Paget. Okay. I do this every single story where I haven't said the names out loud, and so I'm making it up as I go. Yeah, you're but you just get like, the point. This. Yeah, I understand. Paget. <laughs> <laughs> So he's he's the secretary is waking him up with a telegram and Sir Eustace in his like his story is going, I just wanted to fire him. How dare he wake me up before 10 o'clock or something ridiculous. <laughs> and uh, the telegram actually ends up being about the body found in his house in Mill House. And so the secretary, Pajette, is saying, like, we have to go back to England. Like, it's necessary. The people it will look badly if you aren't there. Like we need to be there. We need to return from France or whatever. I think the Riviera is in France. Yeah, probably. So Sir Eustace just kind of going like, how this is so annoying. He doesn't want to return to England. And then he's got, he's kind of reminiscing. He had just sent Paget to Florence for a week because his secretary was always talking about how much he wanted to go to Italy. And so Sir Eustace kind of recognized like, oh, I can get rid of him. Like, perfect. I can have a week off and do absolutely nothing. I'll have no secretary to tell me what to do. And so this is like the first day or so that um, Paget is home, like, sorry, back with him. And so he's like, oh, back to work. Back to work. Okay, so hold on. Can we just like, this guy, Lord Eustace, what's his last name? Sir Eustace Peddler. Sir Eustace, Sir Eustace, I can't say his name, Peddler, isn't, so like, he's the one that has the mill house, where, where the lady was died? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's the, he's the owner of the mill house, but what's trying to either sell it or rent it. I'm not sure which one. Okay. Or like lease it. Okay. I understand. So a few days later, Sir Eustace and Paget are back in London. And while he's there, he ends up meeting up with, like, a politician friend while he's in a bar. This guy kind of comes up to him. And this politician is basically going on about how there's all these, like, there's things going on in South Africa. Like, there's kind of a revolution brewing. And he knows that Sir Eustace has kind of interests of his own in South Africa and had already been planning to go down there in a couple months. And so he's just asking him, can you speed up your trip and do it, like, this week? because there's some important documents that I want to get to the prime minister of South Africa and I don't want to send them by regular mail. Like they, they're too important basically. 
Okay. And Sir Eustace doesn't want to do this at all, but he's like slowly, he's basically convinced as like it's his duty type thing. And so he kind of reluctantly agrees and is told that the boat will sail on Saturday and it's called the Kilmorden Castle. Okay. So he's going to be on that boat too. At least he can get a vacation on the boat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I think you're right. It doesn't maybe it doesn't take too much convincing to get him to go early, but right. he doesn't want to have to take this this document with him. Mm-hmm. Oh, and so I'll say here, I kind of looked into this about what they're talking about about like what was going on in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And in so this book is written in 1924, but is kind of written from the perspective that it's happening in 1922. Mm-hmm. And in those years, like 1921, 1922, there was something called the Rand Rebellion. Okay. And it, so it's a real thing. The kind of history behind it is that I think in the mines in South Africa, they employed both white and black workers, but this was like a very racist time. And so people's rights were different depending on their color of their skin. Right, of course. And so the mines had like started making less money, maybe like it was after the war, it had become a problem. And so they had started trying to promote the black workers to position more positions of power, or not positions of power, but like um, supervisor roles and stuff like that, which meant that they could have a supervisor, but pay them a lot less because they were black. And so then the white miners got super upset about that. Like, how can I be supervised by a black person? Like, that's ridiculous in their 1920s mindset. <laughs> God. Um, and that's that was the the rebellion. So it wasn't even like I guess when I was reading and I was thinking it must be like the 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 na- like native people to South Africa and like black people like fighting back against the power, but no, it's it's white miners who were upset by the quote unquote injustices of Oh my gosh. It's like, like at yeah. the very beginning, you started to think that it was progressive because they're like, like uh, promoting like black workers in these mines. Yeah, and you're like, oh no, actually, it's not progressive. It was just a lot of racism, consistently. <laughs> yeah, yeah, ah, dang. yeah. They're not. They're promoting them for bad reasoning <laughs> to do with money, and then people are mad about it. Yeah, it was yeah, all. That's just a mess. I should also say I am no expert on. South African politics in any ways. This is like Rick Wikipedia reading is my information for this. So if you're interested, please, people at home, go look into it more. Yeah, look into that. Learn more. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah. So that's like the setting for this story. Again, and it's, it is interesting because she doesn't, Agatha Christie doesn't always write from, not truthful, but like a totally real background. But in this case, this, this, this stuff was going on at the time. Okay, I see. So back to the story. We're back with Sir Eustace in London. He's just been tasked with bringing these documents to South Africa. And so the the following evening, this man arrives at his house saying that he's been sent by the politician that Sir Eustace had been talking to the day before, and that he was sent as a quote unquote, he's calling himself a secretary, but the mindset you get is that he's actually been sent as maybe like a bodyguard. Like he's he's got a scar going across his face. He looks like a really tough guy. Like okay. he's not giving off secretary impressions. I see. I see. Hidden intentions. Yeah. And so Sir Eustace asks, okay, fine, you can come, but I should at least know your name. And the guy says, Harry Rayburn will be a suitable name. Okay. So a fake name. 
Harry Rayburn. You got yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. So now we're, we're, we've moved to the 17th, the day the boat is leaving. Anne has gotten onto the boat and basically immediately becomes seasick. And she's super upset about this because her like idea of what an adventurer looks like is not a girl that gets seasick. So she's pretty upset. But also, oh. what can she do? She's yeah. sick. <laughs> oh, no, that's so rough. <laughs> yeah. So luckily, though, on the fourth day, one of the stewardess stewardesses basically makes her come up on deck and is kind of like, if you're going to die, it's better to die in the fresh air than in a cabin. She's joking, but she makes she makes Anne come above. And basically by the next day, like the following day after that, Anne is feeling a lot better and is able to like stomach food and get up and go for walks. So thank you, stewardess. Great suggestion. Yeah. Okay. Save the day. <laughs> Yeah, the story was about to get real boring if she stayed below deck. <laughs> so while she's above um, on deck, she gets introduced to Mrs. Blair, who is this woman that they describe as always getting what she wants without being offensive. So she's kind of able to ask for things and everyone wants to do it for her because she's such a personable person. Okay. And then there's an, another character called Colonel Race. And they kind of describe him as a strong, soldierly man with a bronzed face. So the I guess the idea that he's seen the world and he's done a lot of traveling. Okay. So sometime as soon as, I think maybe that the first day that Anne is starting to recover, Mrs. Blair comes up to talk to her. And she says that Anne should ask for a new room. Because right now she has like a, a room without windows. It's like on the inside of the boat. Mm -hmm. And she should ask for an outside room because... It's been like their first stop and a lot of people disembarked. And so there's a lot of free rooms. Mm. And that would probably, she's saying that will help with your seasickness. Good call. There's also like an opportunity to see the Grand Peak of Tenerife. Tenerife? <laughs> I wonder if that's a real thing. <laughs> Grand Peak of Tenerife? Let me look it up. Oh, it is a real place. Oh, I see. I looked it up too. It's in like the Canary Islands, right? Yeah. Okay. So it's like on the way to Spain or something. Yeah. So they're, this is like, you know, they're going from the United Kingdom to South Africa. That kind of route makes sense. So they're passing by there. And Mrs. Blair is really wants to take a picture of it. So she gets out her camera and they go to like whatever, snap some pictures. And Colonel Race is laughing at her because he's kind of going, there's no way any of these pictures turn out any good. And I think Mrs. Blair realizes that she's had her flash on the whole time. And she's like, oh, Darn. And so she gets out a new roll of film to start taking more pictures <laughs> and drops it. And so kind of goes, oh, I wonder, like, that, there goes that plan. And she's wondering, did it go overboard or did it just, because they're on one of the higher decks, did it just drop onto one of the lower decks and maybe, like, hit someone in the head? <laughs> Clumsy. Yeah. <laughs> so then at lunch, Anne asks the purser, I'm not exactly sure what that means. It's not a steward or a stewardess. It's like a per the purser. Maybe like they're in charge of more things. Have you ever been on a cruise or anything like that? Never. I've never been on a cruise. Okay. Well, it doesn't matter. This guy whose title is a purser, she asks him for a new to switch rooms. And he says, not a problem. Um, they'll hook her up. They'll like let her know what room after lunch. Mm-hmm. And then while she's kind of looking around at lunch, looking around the room, this is like her first first day actually sitting down at the lunch table. Okay, so she's just kind of arrived to the game. 
basically. So she's kind of like taking in all the characters and everyone's there. She sees this tall, sinister looking man that she's never, she hasn't seen before. Mm -hmm. Hasn't seen him like walking on deck. And so she asked the purser, who's that? And he said, oh, that's Sir Eustace Peddler's secretary. His name's Paget. He's been seasick this whole journey too. So he's just coming up on deck. Okay. So after lunch, the steward comes to bring her to her new room and goes up to number 13. And she kind of says, she's saying in her story, she's a superstitious person. And so she almost like starts crying saying, no, it can't be number 13. I like, I I won't move. I can't be number 13. Mm -hmm. And so the steward's like, okay, no problem. How about number 17? And so they go to start bringing her things down to the room. She said like, yes, it looks fine. It's slightly smaller than number 13, but again, she's superstitious, not a problem. Mm -hmm. As they're starting to bring her things in, this new character arrives. His name is Reverend Edward Chichester. Okay. Chichester? Chichester? It's spelled... Chichester? <laughs> C-H-I-C-H-E-S-T-E-R. Chichester. Chichester. Well, that's... Chichester? That's a, I think it's Chichester. I don't know. Don't okay. Listen. I don't know. No, that sounds way more fun. We'll go with that one. Okay. So he shows up at this number, this room, number 17, and he says that the per- the steward had promised him number 17, that it was his room. And before the Rev, this new character, the Reverend had showed up saying that it was his room, the Paget, the secretary, had showed up saying that number 17 had been promised to Sir Eustace for them to use as like office space. And so now there's three of them there all going, I was promised number 17. No, it's mine. No, it's mine. Mm, disaster. Yeah. While the fighting is kind of going on, Anne sneaks off to get the purser and she kind of fakes some tears in order to say like, I was promised number 17 and I should have it. And so the purser kind of seeing a woman in distress takes her side and kicks the other two men out and gives the room to Anne. Good for Anne. Yeah. <laughs> get what you want. <laughs> so I think she goes up to dinner, whatever. And when she gets back to her cabin afterwards, it smells terrible it like reeks and she recognizes the smell as being something called asafoetida huh what's that the pronunciation doesn't matter exactly it's a type (laughs) of drug that is used as like a i forget what the drug is used for but maybe to make you nauseous oh would that make sense like something that you to make if you if you wanted someone to throw up maybe yeah, like some sort of like sickness inducing thing. That was my understanding. I guess I could also look this up. I, you would wonder why I don't do this as I'm writing about it. <laughs> this says it's just used in Indian food. So I <laughs> might have looked up the wrong thing. <laughs> that's like really funny that we started there with like something that's going to make you nauseous. And then it's like, oh, it's just an Indian food. <laughs> It means nothing. No, that's not helpful. <laughs> this says that it's used as a sedative. It can thin blood. It lowers blood pressure. Widely used in India in food and as a medicine. Medicine in Indian systems of medicine, like Ayurveda. Okay. Okay. Some sort of like herbal thing. Yes, and it doesn't really matter what it does. The idea is that it has an extremely sm- strong smell, and Anne realizes that someone's put it there in order to make her try and switch rooms, like to try and get her out of the room. Right, okay. Yeah, they're trying to make her sick. Yeah. So then she kind of, she looks at that piece of paper again at the numbers and realizes maybe it wasn't a date, 
but the set the first 17 was the room number right yeah and the date was like 1 a.m or 1 p.m on the 22nd of january like the 22 is the the day and she realizes that the 22nd is tomorrow ah so maybe something's gonna happen in there tomorrow yes oh that's what she's thinking okay okay so this is like the evening, right, of the 21st. And so she's kind of thinking, okay, I've got to stay up until 1 a.m. Because I'll be the 22nd. So it might happen then or it might happen in the afternoon. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Smart. Clever. <laughs> yeah, she kind of got lucky that she's figured this out in time. Yeah, right. <laughs> so the clock strikes 1. She's stayed up all night. And at first, nothing happens. But then she hears, like, running, like, footsteps outside. And suddenly there's kind of like banging on her door and then the door bursts open. And this man comes in and cries out, save me, they're coming for me. And so she's quick thinking, she pulls her trunk out from under her bed, like kind of pushes his him under the bed and then opens up the trunk and takes out some soap to make it look like she's washing. Okay. Whoa. I know. It's no not stopping. There's a knock at the door and without kind of waiting, it opens and there's this night stewardess there. And she says, oh, I heard you call out. Are you, were you calling out for something? Duh, what? Anne goes, no, I didn't say anything. It's fine. And the stewardess goes, oh, okay, just there's a gentleman who's quite drunk and we're worried that he's going to get into one of the women's rooms. We're just checking. Like, we're just being vigilant. Mm, mm. Oh, is that guy drunk? Well, now Anne's like, is that all it was? Like, there's just a drunk guy and now I have to deal with a drunk guy in my room? <laughs> and so she goes to get him out. Right? Yeah. No one wants that at 1 a.m. Nobody. (laughs) (laughs) So she goes to come out from the bed and he kind of looks dead drunk. Like he's like passed out. And so she's pissed. She's really upset with him until she realizes that there's blood all over his chest. (gasps) Uh Uh-oh. So she's able to pull him out from under the bed and she starts, she kind of, I think, starts treating his wound. Like she opens up his shirt. And as she's, like, kind of rinsing it with cold water, the cold water wakes him up. And for some reason, he gets really mad at her and says that he doesn't need her help. And kind of like, yada, 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 you're no use to me. And so then she gets super mad. She's like, I hid you. And then I'm cleaning your wound. And this is how you're going to repay me. Yeah, how rude. Yeah. And then he leaves with no explanation and without thanking her. So she's kind of just left in a room, like, with the the adrenaline pumping, I assume. (laughs) But that happened like right at 1 a.m., right? She thought something might happen at 1 a.m. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's weird. Exactly. It's kind of like was – she's thinking, is this what was supposed to happen? Did it happen? It just wasn't in the room? Like what's going on? Right. Yeah, because like what if like – yeah, he burst in immediately saying like they're after me and then nothing happens. So – and he's like, I don't need your help. So maybe he was – thought it would be a different woman there and he's noticed now that like Anne's not the Mm -hmm. right person and he just quickly changes his story and gets the heck out of there Mm -hmm. that's what I'm thinking yeah so exactly just kind of unclear but good guess we'll see we'll keep going okay so Anne and Miss Blair the next morning they get up and they're chatting and Anne kind of starts to tell her all about her father's work and Mrs. Blair kind of says she was awoken in the middle of the night by a steward returning her film to her that she had lost. And she said it was such a weird way. They had just like opened one of the vents and kind of stuck their arm out and dropped it on her chest. And she was like, what a 
Like he could have just knocked also at like in the middle of the night. Very strange. Very strange indeed. That's very odd. Are you sure it was her film? What if it's different film? Good question. Okay. <laughs> they, don't, they don't say anything more about it. Okay. <laughs> so Anne goes back to her cabin after they've kind of finished chatting and finds everything out of order. Like it's not a complete mess, but she kind of says that she likes to keep things very organized and she can tell someone's been through her stuff. Like it's out of order. Okay. And so then she sits down to think. She's like, okay, let me go through my suspects. And so first of all, that man from last night, she didn't recognize him as anyone that she's seen on the ship before. Mm-hmm. So and right now she's calling him mystery man because she, she doesn't man. recognize him. Okay. And then she's thinking, so he's a suspect her. He's like, what's going on with her? And then he, she's thinking about Sir Eustace Peddler mm-hmm. because I'm not sure we've heard they've talked to each other too much, but him and his secretary, Mr. Paget, like one of maybe one of them wanted that room, number 17. And so are they in on it? And then the Reverend Shishester. Mm-hmm, right. Because he wanted the room as well. Right. Yeah. Well, I think it's suspicious that Pachette, like, was also sick. I'm just saying. I'm more suspicious of mm. them. Because Why was he also sick okay. up until the same day? Good question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so she's kind of, I think she decides she's going to try and have, like, conversations with all of these people. So she starts with the Reverend Shishester. And she finds him out on the deck. She goes up to him for a chat. And she kind of gets the feeling, like, he's talking about, what would it be called if, like, you, you're a priest or reverend or, like, you're someone of, like, the Catholic faith and you go to another country to try and convert people? Um, Like a missionary? Like, I would say. Yeah. Like, I'd say something like that. Like, they're, some people call it, like, they're going on a mission. Well, who says that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so that's that's kind of the work that he's describing so i i don't think people should be doing that no nah. converting people probably but not. that's that's the the impression like that's what he does in africa and so he's even talking about like he's he's with like you know actually, you know what i'm not gonna get into it it's not really that important to this story. <laughs> okay <laughs> but so that's that's what he's talking about and that's what the him and Anne are talking about and she's kind of getting this feeling that he's putting on an act like she's almost like all the reverends that she's known from back in England, none of them are this, what's the word? Like, like what is, is he like being like really talkative and like excited about his work or something? It's like he's being really forceful. Ah. Like he's, maybe he's just very passionate is maybe the word, but she, she just kind of feels that the reverends that she normally meets are kind of more subdued in their, their method of speaking. And so this just feels off to her. Okay. Yeah. Like it's as if like he's, a reverend but hasn't spent much time with reverends <laughs> yeah 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 okay okay so maybe he's putting on an act that's so she's she's not sure but that's kind of the feeling she's getting okay and so as they're chatting sir eustace passes behind them and he kind of stoops to pick up a piece of paper that's at the reverend's feet and hands it back to the reverend and Mr. Chichester looks super agitated and he kind of turns like a sickly green when he gets this paper. And so Anne's looking at him like she's thinking in her head, why couldn't I have found that piece of paper? I want to know what's on it. Right. And so she kind of like looks to him expectantly and he just goes, oh, it's just part of a sermon. It's no big deal. Why would that make him feel sick, though? <laughs> Good question. Right. But we and don't like, know. And like, I don't think like maybe the other guy 
it wasn't actually on the floor. Like he just pretended to pick it up and was actually just handing a brand new piece of paper to the reverend, right? Oh, possibly. Yeah. Okay. That's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> so Anne, Anne's like just wishing she could know, but does not. And so at lunch, she goes to sit with Sir Eustace and Mr. Paget, Mrs. Blair and Colonel Race. And so they're all eating together. And they kind of start talking about Italy and the people of Italy. And Sir Eustace asks Mr. Paget about it. And he kind of stammers agreeance and then leaves really quickly. And Sir Eustace is kind of saying to the table that he's finding it really weird. His secretary keeps doing that. Whenever Italy is brought up, he immediately tries to change the subject or leave. And so he's kind of saying that he's starting to feel like when Mr. Paget was in Florence he had done something shady and doesn't want to talk about it. Okay. Okay. So my first thought was that maybe he didn't actually go to Italy. Like he was supposed to be in Italy. And so he's just like, yeah, he wasn't there at all. And so he's just like running away anytime (laughs) someone brings it up because he doesn't know what to say. (laughs) (laughs) But okay. Something shady in Florence, maybe. Possibly. Yeah. So that he's, Sir Eustace is kind of, I think he thinks it's funny. He likes the idea of like, working up his secretary and like watching his reaction <laughs> sounds like a great dude yeah so that evening colonel race and Anne dance a bunch and then they go on out onto the deck and talk about anthropology and like her her father and his work and all of that kind of thing mm-hmm. and he gets some he gets some things wrong in their conversation that seem really obvious and so Anne is thinking about it later and she's kind of realizing that he, he seemed really well read on certain certain topics, but the mistakes he was making were like easy ones. Like, why wasn't he getting that? Mm-hmm. And then she's kind of realizing, did he do it on purpose to test me? Mm. To see like if, if Anne actually knew what she was talking about. She's like, maybe he thinks I'm not who I say I am. And it was mm. like mm. tricking me. I see. Like what? Like, what do you mean? Like, she just got think like he was just saying things like slightly incorrectly and she thought maybe this is a test exactly it'd be like they they're having they would talk about something super in depth but then i think i think she says he said at one point that this era came before that era when in reality it was vice versa and she was kind of saying she would kind of give him a look and he would immediately kind of fix his mistake like correct what he had said oh okay okay i see and her first thought was that, um, was he lying and he had he just studied up on this stuff to make it sound like he knew what he was talking about? But then her second thought is, or was he testing me? Yeah, to make sure she knew what she was talking about. To see about. if I really know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ah, yeah. shady men. <laughs> <laughs> They're all terrible. <laughs> so then we jump back to Sir Eustace's perspective. And so this is kind of the, from his diary, it's... Still, it's on the boat, so it's the same time frame of what Anne has just been talking about in her in her story, mm-hmm. um, but from his point of view. Okay. So he's he's kind of saying Paget, his secretary, is complaining to him about how there's not enough space in the room to do work, like the typewriter doesn't fit all of this, and so Sir Eustace says, "Okay, fine, just get another room. Like we'll we can spread out. There's like extra stuff. We'll just talk to the purser." Mm-hmm. And then after the cabin seventeen debacle. Paget is kind of telling him the whole story and saying how it was so weird that like with Chichester and Anne getting the room and he seems really defeated. And Sir Eustace kind of goes like, why does it matter? Like we didn't need, I just told you to get another room. Like 17 wasn't Mm -hmm. 
who like 13's bigger that's much better but Paget like looks he's he, I, see. I, I don't know he's sad like um he was like obviously he was the one that wanted room 17 not like sir eustace i guess Paget was just like all about room 17 yeah we're kind of getting that feeling like it's not said so but that's the okay the atmosphere not the atmosphere but that's the that's the insinuation mm-hmm. um and then Paget also says that later in the day after Anne had gotten the room he saw chichester coming out of that cabin out of that room number 17 Ooh. Ooh. Mm-hmm. and so sir eustace kind of says uh basically he's taken it as Paget trying to say that Anne is like not a quote unquote decent woman. And so he's going, I don't, I don't, I think Anne is respectable. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm sure there was like a perfectly good reason for a man to be coming out of her room. Basically. Well, hold on. We're talking about a reverend, aren't we? How come we're like confused with yeah. Anne's decency when like we're talking about a reverend right now? Going at like, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Good question. Okay. Good question. It's the 1920s. Everything's everything's yeah. wrong. Yeah, everything's just wrong. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so then Sir Eustace kind of jumps to he wants to get a table for six for the coming up in a few days is the fancy dress party. And he wants to have he wants to sit with Mrs. Blair and the captain of the ship and um Anne. And Paget kind of says well, you'll only get a tape, like, Mrs. Blair will only sit with you if Colonel Race is there, because they're, like, such good buddies. Mm. And you, Sir Eustace is a little upset because he doesn't like Colonel Race. He finds him annoying and doesn't want to sit with him. But that's the way it is. Okay. And then Paget is also kind of mentioning when he's saying that, like, the two are inseparable. He's kind of going, and did you hear, apparently Colonel Race is, like, part of the Secret Service. Like, those are the rumors that are going around. Oh interesting mm-hmm. interesting indeed why is he interested in mrs blair i wonder if he's in sur- secret service good question interesting okay so they finish talking him and Pajette kind of finish the conversation and then he goes up on deck to kind of just get some fresh air and he sees Anne and shishester talking and so this is kind of like making him think about the two of them. And he sees, he like stoops down to pick up, he sees a piece of paper on the ground, and hands it back to the reverend. And he kind of says he's written in his diary that he couldn't help reading it. And the words on the paper were, don't try to play a lone hand or it will be worse for you. Oh, what? Mm-hmm. Don't try to play a lone hand or it will be worse for you? Yeah. Okay, so he's like being threatened, obviously, by someone. Yeah, and so Sir Eustace's perspective is he kind of writes like, I like I thought this. I didn't think reverends would get mixed up in this kind of those kinds of affairs. Like I wonder what's going on, but none of my business. Right. And yeah. on. He doesn't care about anything. No <laughs> extra work. No, thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> so the night of the fancy dress party, they're having a lot of fun, and Sir Eustace decides to order like a fancy bottle of champagne, which he. He says, does wonders to loosen people's tongues. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and what it does is it makes Colonel Race starts telling a bunch of stories about like fighting lions and Sir Eustace noticing that he's no longer like the center of attention and that like the women's attention is distracted by Colonel Race. He wants to tell his own stories. So he starts going on about lion stories from, from around Africa. Mm-hmm. And somehow they get the diamonds get mentioned and 
immediately both the women, Mrs. Blair and Anne, are like enthralled and want to hear stories about diamonds. Right. And so they ask Race if he has any info. And so I think there's this idea that in South Africa, the town or the whatever area of Kimberley was like the main mining location for diamonds. And that's where De Beers was based. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So Colonel Ray starts to tell a story of there were these young men that before the war had gone to South America to do some mining there. There were stories that there was these, these very good locations for diamonds in South America. And so they had found some rough cut diamonds and brought them back to Africa to be um, appraised by De Beers. And so the two friends were John Eardsley and Lucas, a friend Lucas. Mm-hmm. I think that's the last name. They don't give a first name. And they had gone to submit the diamonds for inspection. But it seems that somehow those, the diamonds or some other diamonds were robbed from De Beers. And so, and immediately, somehow, maybe because they're the South, they had been replaced by the South American diamonds, the blame fell on these two young men, these two friends. Oh. And so the the father of John Eardsley was like this famous rich guy in South Africa. And so he had, I think, paid such that they wouldn't go to court. Mm. But he then had disowned his son and basically been like, I'm never talking to you again. You're on your own. I can't believe you would ruin the family name like this. Ah, so what they just like found some diamonds though. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Well, right. But there it's, it seems like there was a robbery from De Beers mm-hmm. and that it's, there was this connection to them, even though. Yeah. So possibly, but they were told about the diamonds in South America, right? So they could have been just like told by some people who were stealing diamonds, like, hey, go find some diamonds and bring them back here. And that just created the setup. Yeah. Okay. Possibly. Uh, Who knows? But in any case, because like their names had been ruined and they were like, they they stood by that they were innocent. uh, They both ended up going to fight in the war and John Eardsley was pronounced dead and his friend Lucas was uh, missing in action and assumed dead. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's Colonel Race just told that story or whatever his name is. Race? Yes. Nace? Rose? Correct. I can't remember what it is. Yeah. Race. R-A-C-E. Oh, okay. Okay, cool. So as he finishes telling that story, Anne kind of gasped and Sir Eustace looks to see what she's looking at and his secretary Rayburn has just walked the door and Anne kind of goes, who's that? Because in him, she recognizes the man with the scar from that night in her room. Mm. And he kind of goes, Oh yeah, it's just my, my secretary. And she presses him for information and he has to admit that like, okay, yes, I just hired him before I left on this boat trip. Okay. So hold on. Sorry. He's whose secretary? Colonel races. Oh, sorry. I said, I said Colonel race. I said the wrong name. Mm. Uh, It's Rayburn. Rayburn. That, that oh. you know, Elias Harry Rayburn that Harry, had been right. given. Right, 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 right. Harry Rayburn. Oh, okay. It's, I remember. Uh, Sir Eustace's right. second secretary. Yeah. I Quote remember. unquote secretary. Yeah. Okay. Security detail. <laughs> 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 and then also Colonel Ray separately, as he's finishing the story, they ask the father of that John Eardsley man, Sir Lawrence Eardsley, he had just died and left all his fortune to his next of kin. And so they're asking Colonel Race, who's the next of kin? Like, who's going to get all this money? And Colonel Race goes, oh, well, I should know because it's me. Oh, what? Huh? Why? So he's just inherited this fortune. 
Interesting. Why? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, okay. So he just got a whole bunch of money and he's telling this story about like some family member of him, of his. Yeah. That's weird. Why wouldn't you just lead with that information? Okay. Good question. <laughs> I don't know. You want to sound cool. I'm not sure. Yeah, I guess so. So that was all Sir Eustace Padler's point of view. And now we jack, uh, jack. <laughs> now we jump back to Anne Bedingfield's point of view. Mm-hmm. And so she's kind of talking about it's after the fancy dress parties happened and uh, it's late in the evening and she's realizing that she feels really lonely and that she really wants something, someone to confide in. Like she feels like she has all of this information, all these like things floating around in her head, but she needs someone to help her align everything and put the facts straight. Okay. So she goes through all of her options and then she decides on Mrs. Blair. Hmm. She realizes she doesn't know the room number that Mrs. Blair is in. So she asks the porter and gets the number. It's um, cabin 71. And she also asks, like, uh, he kind of apologizes that it took him so long, but he's the only person on duty. And she goes, well, what about the night stewardess? Night stewardesses, you know, Mm -hmm. like the one that had had come into her room. And he goes, oh, there's no stewardesses on duty after 10 p.m. You must have been dreaming. That didn't happen. Oh, so some random woman showed up. Yeah, dressed as a stewardess. Okay. So Anne arrives at Mrs. Blair's room and tells her, kind of tells her everything. And they're talking about everything. And Mrs. Blair is like very interested. And so I I didn't say this in Mrs. Blair's description before, but she's not only very persuasive, but super well-educated. So she's very smart. She's very sure of herself. So she is a good person to be kind of going over these points with. Okay, I see. And so she realizes that she kind of something clicks in her brain and so she draws out this sketch and shows it to Anne and she goes is this your stewardess and Anne goes yeah that's exactly who they look like and it was what she'd done is she had traced out Reverend Shishester but drawn him as if he was a stewardess and so they're kind of going I think he must have he's kind of got that face structure I think it was him playing a woman (laughs) what the heck how would you draw that okay (laughs) I don't know. No idea. <laughs> okay. That's why I'm kind of explaining it more because it is a little confusing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Anne has also brought along the scrap of paper with her. And so she shows that, like the one with the, the date on it in the Kilmorton Castle and shows it to Mrs. Blair. And Mrs. Blair again makes kind of an important discovery. And she goes, this doesn't say 17-122. It says one seventy one twenty two. I think the room is my room, room 71. Why does she think it's... 71 though it was they had been reading the paper before as if there had been a dot after the 17 like one seven dot Mm -hmm. but mrs blair holds it up to the light and realizes that that it was not a dot drawn in it's just an imperfection in the paper oh okay so it's 171 22 i see yeah so she's going well what she's kind of saying well nothing happened at 1 a.m on the 22nd in my room and she's also able to say but it wasn't originally her room. She'd gotten on the boat and immediately asked for a better room. And this room, the woman who was supposed to be occupying it hadn't showed up. But she'd asked the porter or the steward or whoever who was supposed to be staying in the room and finds out that it was Madame Nadina, a Russian d- dancer celebrated in Paris. Right. Right. And I, okay, so she was the woman from the prologue, right? Yes. Correct. Okay. Okay interesting because i as soon as we Do you have any theories about that 
Yeah, like when I first heard about like the night stewardess, I went, oh, it's the Russian dancer. Like that's the woman okay. who's like in here pretending yeah. to be a stewardess. That was my first yeah. guess. Uh-huh. What I find confusing is how like how much these people are changing rooms and like clearly there's been <laughs> some sort of plan to meet somewhere. Why would you pick uh-huh. rooms if like everybody goes onto a boat and just goes, I need a better room. I feel like that was a bad idea to yeah. like base your crime yeah. on rooms. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. That's all I've got right now. I don't know. So Anne, Anne kind of clues in. She goes... Why would Madame Nadina not sail? Why would she not get on the boat? And so, because she would have taken this room if she was on here. Mm-hmm. So then she thinks, what are reasoning? What are reasons you wouldn't be able to get on a boat? Were you sick? Were you what? Blah blah blah. Oh, she was. Killed. And then it clicks in with her. Yeah, it's the dead woman from the mill house. Right. Of course. Of course. So, huh? So then something you said. You kind of were onto this track a little bit already. On that same night, this tw- the 22nd, at around 1 a.m., Mrs. Blair had been apparently given back her roll of films that she had lost that day. Oh, yeah. Oh, but yeah. It was like a film canister. It wasn't, it wasn't actually the roll of films. It was the canister that you put the films in. And so they pick it up and kind of shake it, and it sounds like pebbles. So there's diamonds in there, right? Yeah. They pour it out, and Anne goes... There, it's pebbles, and Mrs. Blair goes, no, honey, you haven't seen the world. Those are diamonds. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So, so like, Anne found that, what is it, the film that wasn't developed, right? So somebody just picked yeah. that up and then, yeah. like, threw it on the ground and it rolled into the cabinet, and they went, we just need the container. So all the diamonds were maybe at the mill house, and... The dancer, yeah, like the dancer was showing up to get the diamonds. And when she did that, somebody came in there and took them off of her or beat her to it and killed her. Right? Something like that. Yeah. Oh, wait. No. Sorry? Never mind. I'm confused now. Keep going. (laughs) No, tell me. Tell me what it is. Um, Okay. So that doesn't make sense because the diamonds got delivered to the Russian dancer, right? Because she was supposed to be in that Mm. room. So they were somebody was delivering yeah. those diamonds to her, but she died in the meantime. And presumably, wherever she died, that film was there too at the time, right? In the house where she died. Yeah. Re- remember that the the film small smelled like mothballs. So oh, there was. Yeah. So the they're doc- guessing that it had at one time been on that the, the dead man in the tube. The dad. Oh yeah, the dead man in the tube. So the dead man in the tube. He must have had the diamonds first. Maybe that doctor took the diamonds off of him and oh no, who has the diamond? When did the diamonds show up, man? I don't know. <laughs> I'm like <laughs> I don't know. It is it is confusing. Okay. I think we're we're about to get some more answers. Okay. I'll say that about this specifically, not about the whole story. Okay. So okay, okay. Hold your thoughts for now. We're about to get to it, and I think you'll understand a little better. I'm going to hang on to this. Okay, I'm hanging on to it. (laughs) So Mrs. Blair pieces together, this is her opinion, that the man in the brown suit, the guy who had, um, they had come out of the mill house or had gone to the mill house with that woman, Mm -hmm. she pieces together that he must be Rayburn, Mm -hmm. the quote-unquote secretary of Sir Eustace. Mm Mm-hmm. 
and Anne admits that this, and this is the same man that had turned up in her, uh, in Anne's room on the night of the 22nd. Mm -hmm. Anne admits that she's in love with him. So that was pretty quick. She's seen him one time and is already in love with him. <laughs> what? Oh, that scar, you know, <laughs> she just couldn't handle it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Anne, Anne kind of says somehow again, she already knows everything about his personality and she says that he might have wanted to kill the woman in the mill house, but that he didn't do it. And the reason that she knows he didn't is that if he had killed her, he would have strangled her with his own hands. He wouldn't have used a cord. Ew, that's kind of a gross assumption to make out of someone. <laughs> yeah. It's like, someone no, that I like, I, I think this guy's a good man because he would have actually strangled her <laughs> with his hands, but he didn't. <laughs> so... He's got to be good. <laughs> That's not. Yeah. Uh, it is. There's a flaw there. I'm leaving there. <laughs> <laughs> they do. This story is like very, mis like it's got so many parts to it. There is a lot of like love story line mm. going on that I'm kind of leaving out. So mm. there is more to this in a sense, but it's, it's extra. I'm not going to talk about it. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. That's fair. So the next day, Anne goes to interview the night steward that, so there was, there wouldn't have been stewardesses, I guess, on duty, but there was one night steward for the whole ship. Mm -hmm. And she goes to interview him about that roll of film, because presumably he was the one that delivered it to Mrs. Blair's room in the middle of the night. And so with a little bit of coaxing and some money, <laughs> some tips, he tells her, and with that note on that cliffhanger, that's where we're going to pause for this week. This episode ended up being very long. It was about three hours. And so to make it shorter, I decided to cut it into two parts. So this is part one. If you would like to hear the end of this story and the solution to the story, tune in next Tuesday to your part two, where Jessica will join me again and we will finish The Man in the Brown Suit by Agatha Christie. As always, if you would like to listen to any more podcasts while you wait, you can find 14 more episodes of the Tuesday Night Mystery Club anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you want to get pictures and updated info about all the podcasts, you can follow me on Instagram, Tuesday Night Mystery Club. And if you have any comments, concerns, you want to let me know how great this show is, you can email me at TuesdayNightMysteryClub at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Goodbye.